welcome to Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. I'm your host, Tom Masters, and returning to the show today is Dr. Jeff Smith. He's a clinically active orthopedic traumatologist, a certified professional coach, and the CEO and founder of Surgeon Masters, a surgeon coaching company. Welcome. Thank you, Tom. Jeff, welcome back. And I just want to reintroduce you to the audience. Um, he is an orthopedic surgeon. He's a traumatologist. He's also a certified professional coach and CEO and founder of Surgeon Masters, which is a surgeon coaching company. And Jeff and I have been in contact for at least five years, maybe longer. Um, as most of you know, I've also had my own burnout efforts um, that we've done at Swedish Hospital in Seattle with lots of success. And physician burnout is a huge problem, but we don't see a lot of things being done about it. So what I'm impressed about Jeff, he clearly just dug in and did it. And I know it hasn't always been easy, but it's been very persistent and it's coming to life. It's happening. So welcome back, Jeff. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, I've uh, been uh, building this concept of Surgeon Masters uh, for probably now about seven years, maybe a little bit more, been more and more effective over the last five years. And over the last year or two, uh, things are starting to really take off, you know, partly because of the persistence, but partly because um, you and I both believe that uh, these things will make a difference and, and help uh, prevent burnout for some of our younger colleagues, potentially, and also address burnout in those that might be experiencing it. And, uh, you know, I, I think of this as a spectrum where it's also not just about addressing and avoiding burnout, but, you know, creating an improvement beyond survival and success, but to where we're actually thriving doing what we're doing because thriving surgeons usually create a lot of thriving patients. Absolutely. I mean, I know you went through a tough time yourself and so did I, and I will say that whether it's chronic pain or burnout, which in a lot of ways is the same thing, that when people actually learn the tools and concepts, they do thrive. It's exciting to watch. And so that's it, fantastic. So um, I just want to give you my definition of burnout and just curious what your definition might be. So my definition of burnout, my definition of burnout is thank God it's Monday, as opposed to thank God it's Friday. That's sort of my simplistic, simplistic definition of burnout. Because when you know, I used to just go through the weeks hoping I would not get a complication or something that wouldn't go bad or just get through the week, and then eventually I learned to process the stress and thrive. Um, I couldn't wait for Monday. I was anxious to get back in action and enjoy my patients and enjoy my skills. It was a huge, huge paradigm shift for me. So I'm curious, um, maybe what the official definition of burnout is. Um, I know there's a bunch of research on it. What's your concept of what burnout actually is? Well, um, I'll preface it by following the science that uh, the Maslach burnout inventory is the most published burnout index out there. Uh, and how do you spell that? The Maslach, M-A-S-L-I-C-H, burnout okay. inventory. Okay. And that one's been used a lot in research. Um, that's uh, what came out of uh, Christine Maslach and uh, several other associates over the years. And it 
measures emotional exhaustion, depersonalization or cynicism, and uh, a decreased sense of personal accomplishment. Uh, it's the word, you know, it dates back many years, but the word in today's day and age, and maybe even then, had enough of a negative connotation that it was somehow a failing of the individual, that it's had a fair amount of resistance when people hear it and, and speak about it. Uh, if you can get past that, it actually, they've written several follow-up articles that highlight that the main causes of burnout are organizational and they intended it, they, they consider most of these interpretations as misuse of their tool. And so when people, they say, say this should be mainly an indicator to organizations that the organization or the team needs some changes so that their people are not burning out. Um, but, you know, you have to, you have to move past that a little bit and appreciate that if people have a, a challenge with the word, then we have to use other terms and words too, and moral injuries used. Um, to, to me, you know, for me, when I look back on my career, I didn't actually recognize it as burnout. I learned about burnout and I learned in the coaching, I learned how to turn my career into more of a growth mindset and a recovery and healing. Um, and in the process of that, I was still talking about burnout as if this referred to a more profound or significant condition. And, and your story certainly describes that, but imagine even someone who's experiencing that, who maybe doesn't have any suicidal ideation, maybe isn't having profound anxiety, they're still feeling like they're not a fit in their career or so many things in their career mismatch what they actually were intending. They wanted the most people go in the medicine wanting to help heal or bring patients back to a functional recovery. And if you're experiencing a mismatch from that, wow, right? right? And so you might not be experiencing anything else negative, but that's still not what you went in the medicine in the first place for. Right. And then to me, all this on a scientific basis is dose related. So the more significant the moral injury, the bigger dose or injury that you're experiencing mentally or emotionally, or perhaps even spiritually. And so each of those things require healing and recovery, or, you know, some element of scar to settle in so that you can move forward. You know, it can be physical injury, mental or emotional injury, we don't actually have any avenue to heal and process that with the exception of projects like yours. <laughs> so I'd like to, um, there's many things we can talk about right now, but I'd like to spend a little bit of time really focusing on your approach and techniques and some success stories. Just really go into what, what people actually can do to deal with burnout. Well, one of the parallels, so the co coaching for me, one of the benefits of coaching matches a you know i could certainly be in a business where we're creating um platforms or programs that people can prescribe to and they would be pretty decently effective 
for a broad spectrum. But as I highlighted, there are different things that physicians and surgeons are experiencing. So the actual treatment requires a level of customization. And the nice thing about coaching is an it's an example of customization. And so the coach in conversation with, with a client surgeon for me would be able to, where are you at? What's the reflection of things going on that either you like but want to do better or things that are a challenge for you and you want to make them less challenging? And those conversations are um, created in sort of a partnership between the coach and the client. And you then are creating a process of setting goals and planning. And then almost everything in your program is another example. You can plan it all out, but actions have to take place. And so at the end of a coaching session, uh, a client needs to be committed to creating some moving forward steps and some actions. Um, and I'm a big uh, subscriber to the concept of deliberate practice. That is a little bit the, the cycle of deliberate practice, which is reflecting on what you're doing, creating a plan of how you're going to do it better. You sometimes have to de um, decompress it or deconstruct it is the word I'm looking for and then rearrange it in a more effective way, which is your moving forward um, strategy and plan. So a lot of my coaching is like that. Um, the, the cool thing is that some people um, are, they may even have a fairly decent challenge, but as soon as they see an opportunity for how this can be different, they flip a switch pretty rapidly to get into that cycle and the the relationship of the coach and the client just maintains that uh and as a coach i have to be pretty nimble to uh, follow the journey of of the client to help them move through they might have came in with one goal and they may shift quickly to setting other goals that are very different or additive to the first and I'd like to make one comment. I mean, coaching is a lot different than counseling. Correct. So coaching has its uh, has you know specific training. There's actual skills, and it's while you might be discussing emotional or mental issues in addition to things that aren't necessarily mental or emotional, we're not licensed to, to counselors. Some people do both. Some counselors you know, have license to counsel and do coaching, but coaching in and of itself is specifically follows a definition that it's not counseling. And, and the analogy I like to use, if you're going to learn how to play, be a concert pianist, it takes practice and repetition. In other words, the person who wants to be a concert pianist has to practice. And the only way you, only way that those fingers become automatic is just repetition, repetition, repetition. So it's the same process as with chronic pain. You want to program your pain to automatically go to a less painful site as opposed to the automatic pain response. So as you know, there's awareness, separation, reprogramming. So what the coaching is doing is providing coach and insights, then redirecting. But again, you can read my book or you can read Tiger Woods' book about golf. You can read how to play a piano, but it's repetition, repetition, repetition that actually makes things change. 
So it's the same thing with chronic pain, unless you actually do those repetitions to create a different set of circuits and reactions, nothing changes. And what coaching does is that you provide the wisdom, guidance and support. Then you mentioned something earlier that I thought was really critical is the customization. In other words, everybody's different. So you're gonna take each person a different direction. So it's not really formulaic. Is that a, is that a fair statement? Yeah, and, and there, there can be formulaic models that have a certain degree of effectiveness, but the non-formulaic has the potential to be more effective because you, if the, if the client initiates a thing that they want to improve, then they're more primed for that improvement than if somebody tells them to do it. There's, there's psycho, you know, there's probably neuropathway explanations for this, but there's certainly psychology based aspects. And this goes also along with adult learning theory. Like these are concepts that cross disciplines, but they all show that the person that is ready and requesting improvement or change is going to be primed to make that much better. And that requires that customization and that, that one-on-one -on -one interaction or, or the fluidity of the system trying to help them improve. So if I came to you, let's say in 2003, 2005, I was really not in good shape at all. In fact, I'd, I'm embarrassed to think what kind of shape I was in. And I was able to still function as a surgeon, my complication rate was the same, maybe even a little bit less in a way. So I could actually, the last thing, you mentioned this earlier also is that I was able to do my job but my personal life completely fell apart. I just, I just couldn't hold it all together. And I have read this someplace, maybe you already know the data, that when you're going through a burnout, you do want to hold on to your job because there's a lot of identity in a surgeon in their job. And a lot of things fall apart first before the surgical part falls apart. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, and again, it's, it's probability. So there's the uniqueness of each individual, but you know we're not superhuman. We may be perceived as that, or we may think it at times, but for the most part, we're just as human as anyone else. And if we're juggling too many things, then something's missing, something's being left behind. And the time expectations of most surgeons would, would floor most people. Right. Um, so, you know, something's uh, being losing from that, whether that's relationships on, uh, or friendships, uh, or many other things. The, the nice thing about coaching, and again, it doesn't, um, it's not a replacement for the opportunity for counseling or other mental health services. Right. But the nice thing in the medical world is that there are still a lot of barriers to asking or seeking help. And if 10% or 20% of people reached out to coaching that would otherwise not reach out to anybody, they're at least in a dialogue with another human being. And there's a lot of things in um, the, that clinical world of psychiatry and psychology that knows that they alone can't help a person um, heal or get better 
in those ways as well because they need to be interacting with other people. So it's it's a it's a team approach. The coach can do certain things and not do others, but if that is just enough tipping point to start maybe balancing priorities or you know doing some time management or saying no instead of yes to everything these are all things that can start to turn the the direction where that person might be able to recover or get to a point where they're they see it choices about how to reach out for help um, and not feel shame or stigma or worries about licensing and credentialing and things like that. Yeah. I mean, I went to Minneapolis, which is one of the top spine fellowships in the world. And I mean, the idea of having any hint of weakness, like anxiety or frustration or any need for relaxation just wasn't part of my identity. I mean, my identity was being just having a coat of armor on and it just gets really heavy after a while trying to carry that coat of armor around and so you so that's what happens you mentioned you've mentioned this a couple times is that when you're in the middle of a burnout and not really encouraged to seek help you get i just remember the feeling of isolation was just overwhelming you feel incredibly isolated and just talking to somebody is huge it's a big difference yeah, and you asked me examples. So in in some time, sometimes early on in in coaching conversations, uh, a client will frequently say, after a discussion with me, of, you know, I don't I don't divulge confidential information, but I can say, you know, I have there's a lot of other surgeons feeling the same thing because I know because I talk to them, right? right? Or I know because I'm one of them too, and I've had that feeling. Right. So just knowing and recognizing that they're not the only one experiencing those thoughts and feelings can be very calming and very reassuring, right. like, oh, and it makes sense. Like there's so many things that our minds process that we never act on. Um, and so obviously people have, or I think it's obvious, but you know, maybe not, that people have negative thoughts. Oh, I'm not good enough. Or, oh, um, I, I got to show this outside, but inside, I don't feel that way. I mean, that's where things like um, imposter syndrome comes from, this sense right. that others tell us are not, we're not deserving. And you look at some of those people and you're like, well, of course, you've been in the career for 20 years, taking care of hundreds of patients incredibly well. How can you have imposter syndrome? but it exists. Absolutely. In fact, I, think, <laughs> I think it's the rule. I mean, I think that what gets us to the top, so to speak, is it's not good enough, not good enough, not good enough. And just because you get to the top, that voice doesn't, that voice doesn't necessarily turn off. Yeah. So that was one of the things that was probably the most profound in, in my coach training for me personally, because we actually talked about our inner critic. And for me, the phrase that matched what got me to where I was, was not good enough. So I got into medical school. I got through medical school and got into a very competitive specialty. And I got into a competitive fellowship and everything in my career because I told myself, okay, but still not good enough. Right. And what I didn't realize, one, that I was necessarily doing that, but, but it worked. So I kept doing it. But it, what I also didn't realize 
is that if you don't turn that off, that at some, you know, you're never going to achieve, you know, you never reach a threshold of success. Right. And I said this in a different way is that you, no matter what you do in life, you cannot outrun your mind. Now, never forget about 10 years into practice, I had a beautiful house, beautiful kid, marriage is going fine, had a very high reputation. And so I had it all, right? I had everything I was supposed to be working for and I was miserable. That's when you feel really trapped is when you're actually successful and it doesn't turn off the voice. Right. And, and so what, what is helpful is sharing these ideas and thoughts with surgeons or other physicians of how do you change the voice? And again, it's about creating a new voice, something right. that says that something that you actually want it to say, and then repeating that. Now, what was interesting for me is that I was so challenged by that, that even in training, I was like, somebody was saying, well, why don't you say a phrase like you're amazing and this or that? I was like, amazing. How about just like good enough? Well, they're <laughs> like, well, that's kind of weak. Why don't you say you're great? And I was like, all right, I, I don't agree, but I'll try it. Okay. And I wasn't even comfortable saying that, uh, and I don't think you even have to, like, I wasn't comfortable saying that out loud. Right. And I wasn't comfortable saying that everywhere I walk. Like I didn't go up to the scrub sink and go, I'm great. The only place I did that was in my exercise studio. So maybe if I was at the, at your golf range practicing shots, I would say, you know, repeat to myself, I'm great. And for me, the phrase turned into, I'm amazing. I, I offer hope, care, and the best of my abilities. But that took about three to four years to evolve. Mm -hmm. And the phrase, I say it out loud here, but I really only say that in my safe space. But it's still something that I practice. So my brain hears it. Right. And it is a uh, counterpoint to all the other voices that come up occasionally, like something I can't say, but you know, you're not good uh, right. in different language and words that we've heard amongst ourselves and uh, amongst colleagues, it, it can balance that out. And then after practicing it a while, you can move it into a new space. That's the next challenge. In other words, it might be okay. Maybe I could say that to um, I could say that at the scrum sink in my own head, like what's stopping me from doing that, right? Or do right. that every time I'm about to walk in with a patient, like you're, you're a doctor that cares about others. And then you go in and you're in the mindset of caring about others, but we don't do that. We're never trained to do that. No, it's interesting that as I hear you say this, I actually get a little PTSD myself <laughs> because I'm not comfortable saying that I'm good enough or whatever. And then what I learned from this golf coach, my surgical performance coach, was that this voice becomes incredibly loud and you, but you're not allowed, you don't allow yourself the space to be human. I mean, we actually, I remember giving a conference to about 50 doctors one day, we're standing up there talking about the vision of excellence versus perfectionism. 
The vision of excellence is I'm here and I'm going to go here. And this is how I'm going to get there. Whereas perfectionism is, perfectionism is not good enough, not good enough, not good enough. But the problem is the way we're trained. Our mentors, our staff guys, everybody keeps coming at us that you can do 10 things well. And the one thing that isn't quite right, you just get slammed for. We're not, there's not very much positive reinforcement in training. I don't know what your training was like, but it mine was better than most, by the way. But even still, there's just this endless criticism that's real. I mean, I don't think it's always justified by any means, but the actual negativity coming at, coming at us as surgeons is pretty darn high. Yeah. And, you know, it's an interesting, I've, I've maybe even evolved over the last few years where I think we could be more extreme about that positive, but I, I tend to take a balanced view on a lot of these things. And I recognize that that way of training had a reason and it, people thought it was effective and it, it proved to be effective that if somebody was in a really intense situation like combat, okay, or the middle of a very critical operation, particularly emergent operation, then being able to be so keyed in to not make an error mistake probably has value. So that, that comes from negative training. Like it's, it's right. you're about to touch the stove and somebody slaps you or you touch the stove and it hurts like crazy and you're probably not gonna do that again. Okay, right. so our main mind and body, I think, fun can function off of that, and it's proven that it can. Right. But it's not sustainable, and it does create some pathology if it's not able to be turned off. And so, to me, a lot of this is about making sure that people have the other skill, which is to realize that there's a ton of learning that you can do using positive strategies. Right. And it's probably way more than we actually think. I just Correct. acknowledge that, that that occurred for a reason and it wasn't out of uh, malintent. Right. So Jeff, um, I'm excited about your work. Um, I'm just curious, where do you see your vision for Surgeon Masters five years or 10 years from now? I mean, where, where do you want to take the Surgeon Masters? Well, we're, we're trying to uh, really advance coaching in medicine all around, but certainly in surgery and make it a, a thing that people realize that it can address a wide range of issues, anything from creating high and higher performance, but sustainability doing that so that you know, we know how to work hard and, and do the difficult things that we have to do, learn hard, but being able to balance that out with other things that are healthy. So it's, it's a little bit of integrating that high performance athlete concepts into surgery because we're high performers. It's also going to be the same space that someone who might be dealing with a tough issue, a working on a job promotion and they might not get it or um, an adverse outcome that they then need to process it will be a space where it's you can have that conversation with colleagues um, and well-trained people in when you need a higher level of interaction with a coach or even group opportunities that kind of help address this across um, a wide spectrum of budgets. Um, and really kind of balance 
what what's still going to be out there for a number of years of residual things in the training that that maybe drive it the wrong direction. And I think there are things that are still part of the healthcare system. It's not just the training, right? Um, and we're pretty far along in in creating the platform and the. So we do the one-on-one coaching. We're adding coaches, and we also do the the coach training. And the coach training is broader. We actually train non-surgeons as well. Um, most of the people that we bring into our community of coaches uh, have a special interest in surgery in the surgical space. Um, and then lastly, which is a little bit down the line, is we're really trying to create that community similar to the community that you're creating where people know that they can come and do that at a you know, they don't have to be all in, like they don't have to be engaged with the coach. They don't have to be um, uh, part of more than they want. It's a resource in the community that we're going to be driving this culture change. Well, I'm excited because it sounds like I know, um, it sounds like the last year or so is starting to really take off, which is exciting. And congratulations on that. And uh, no, I think you're doing incredible work. I think it's, you know, probably one of the most needed things in medicine right now is true access to help for a lot of surgeons. So this is really fantastic. So Jeff, thank you very much for coming on the show. And I'm looking forward to uh, staying in touch and we'll see how it goes. Absolutely. And they can follow us on uh, um, surgeonmasters.com. Okay. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Jeff Smith, for being on the show today and for sharing how his company, Surgeon Masters, helps surgeons prevent and heal from burnout. I'm your host, Tom Masters, reminding you to be back next week for another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. And in the meantime, be sure to visit the website at thedocjourney.com. Thanks for listening today and join us next week for Back in Control Radio. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.